This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter in the series, Unusual Criminal Defenses, where I detail cases where unusual defenses are used in court to try and mitigate the perpetrator's guilt. This week, I share a case where a child of wealth and privilege makes choices that lead to the death of four innocent people. But the defense will claim that his very privileged status itself should absolve him of any guilt. This is Chapter 4 of Unusual Criminal Defenses, The Affluenza Defense. It was Saturday, June 15th, and 16-year-old Ethan Couch was throwing a party. The reason for this party was that it happened to be his best friend Garrett's birthday, and another friend, Avery, had enlisted in the Army and wanted to party before he went away. But as it was, Ethan didn't need much of an excuse to have a party. As a matter of fact, he'd just thrown one the weekend before. However, that party had taken place at his parents' new 7,000-square-foot house located in Fort Worth, Texas. There, Ethan had the use of the large two-story guest house located on the property behind the home. The previous week, he'd invited his friend Garrett and Garrett's 15-year-old girlfriend, Star, to hang out and drink. This weekend, he had his family's second home all to himself for this bigger party. In fact, he'd been living in the home by himself for a while now, and it had become something of a party spot for Ethan and his friends. Ethan's parents, Fred and Tanya Couch, had met in 1996 and were married soon after. Tanya had been married once before, when she was just a teen, and had two children. Ethan, Tanya and Fred's only child together, was born in 1997. Fred and Tanya's relationship was volatile, and there was a lot of fighting and yelling. According to Tanya and her older children, Fred was also physically abusive. One of Tanya's daughters reported seeing her stepfather slap her mother when she was pregnant with Ethan. Police were called to the couch home several times, with reports of domestic violence. But although they sometimes advised Fred to leave the home and cool off, there was never an arrest made. After 10 years of marriage, Fred and Tanya divorced. They had purchased a 4,000-square-foot ranch-style house in Brolson, located about 20 minutes south of Fort Worth, when Ethan was just three years old. After their divorce, Fred had a larger house built for himself in northwest Fort Worth, while Tanya stayed in Brolson. But a few years later, Tanya and Fred reconciled, and then remarried in 2011. Tanya moved into the Fort Worth home with Fred, and the house in Burleson, largely empty, was now being occupied by the 16-year-old Ethan. He lived alone and unsupervised most of the time, so it was the perfect location to entertain his friends. On June 15th, a plan was put into place for the teens to meet at Ethan's house to party. That morning, Ethan and his friend Garrett went to work for a few hours at Cleburne Metalworks, a sheet metal company owned by Ethan's father, Fred. Fred had purchased the company when he was 21 years old, and it had become very profitable, now employing over 40 people. After leaving work that afternoon, Ethan and Garrett picked up 15-year-old Star to drive her to the Burleson house. Star had briefly dated Ethan, but had just recently become Garrett's girlfriend. Ethan was driving Fred's Ford F-350 pickup truck, but he was not without his own wheels. It just happened that on that day, 
Ethan's own F-150 truck, was in the shop for repairs. Ethan's truck was a limited Harley-Davidson edition that's list price exceeded $50,000. When the trio arrived at the house, they began posting about the party to their Facebook and Twitter accounts. Avery, the new Army recruit, was the first to arrive. He brought with him a bottle of liquor to add to the bottle that Ethan had already acquired, and they began doing shots. They then ate some dinner before having more drinks. Some friends of Garrett's wanted to come to the party, but needed a ride, so they all got in the truck for the 45-minute drive to Keller to pick up some more boys. On the way there, Ethan showed off for his friends, driving the powerful truck onto an empty soccer field, destroying the turf by doing donuts in the grass. On the way back to Burleson, they decided they needed more booze, so they made a plan to steal some beer from a grocery store. They entered a Walmart, and while Ethan and Starr waited in the truck, four of the boys entered and stole at least two cases of beer. They were caught on the store's surveillance cameras, leaving with the stolen beer. Back at the house, they all continued to drink. Ethan was also doing shots of Everclear, a type of grain alcohol that is sometimes called 151, as that is its proof number. 151 proof is approximately 75% alcohol by volume. Everclear is also bottled at 190 proof, or 95% alcohol by volume. Star began to grow bored and decided she wanted to go home. She had gotten pretty smashed the weekend before, and so didn't feel like drinking again. And as most of us know, it's not very fun to be the only sober person at a party. Pretty much in that state, the rest of the partygoers, especially underage boys, I would assume, seem like idiots. In any case, Star made an excuse that she needed to leave because her period had started and she didn't have any hygiene products with her. While that should have put any teenage boy off, it did not deter Ethan from trying to convince her to stay and party with the group. He first had some of the boys fan out and look through the four bathrooms in the house, but they did not find the needed items. Meanwhile, Star tried to reach two cab companies by phone, but no one picked up. Finally, Ethan told her he would drive her to a convenience store down the road and refused to take no for an answer. She thought better of it, and told Garrett that she didn't think Ethan should be driving. However, her boyfriend told her that he'd seen Ethan drive in this condition many times, and it would be fine. Ethan, having only met some of the other kids at the party for the first time that day, didn't want to leave them alone at the house, so he told the seven other partygoers to get in the truck to take a drive to the store. All eight teens piled into the truck. Two sat in front with Ethan, three sat in the back including Garrett, with Star sitting on his lap, and two more boys climbed into the open truck bed. As he drove off, Ethan floored the truck, peeling out into the road. Garrett and Starr started screaming at him to slow down. But Ethan, pretty drunk at this point, was showing off. He continued to drive recklessly with his seven teenage passengers along for the ride. None of them were wearing seatbelts. It was a recipe for disaster. Twenty-four-year-old Brianna Mitchell was on her way home from work as a chef at a private club. It was late, after 11 p.m., when she was startled as her car blew a tire and swerved off of Burleson Retta Road. Her Mercury Mountaineer hit a mailbox that was attached to a post before stopping on the front lawn of a house. She got out to assess the damage about the same time the residents of the home, Holly and Eric Boyles, and their 21-year-old daughter Shelby, heard the commotion outside and came out to investigate as well. 
Brianna was apologetic, and the Boyles assured her that it was an accident. No reason for apologies. They set about to see what they could do to help, while Brianna pulled out her cell phone to call her mother to let her know what had happened. Just moments later, 43-year-old Brian Jennings was driving down Burleson Redder Road with his son and another boy, having just returned from their middle school graduation festivities. Jennings, a youth minister and father of three, saw the group standing near the car with the blown-out tire and decided to stop and help. He told the two boys who were in the back seat to stay in the car. Brianna was still on the phone with her mother, and Eric Boyles had just taken his broken mailbox into his garage when he heard a horrific crash. He ran back to the road while neighbors also came out of their homes. The sound was so loud, some thought it was an explosion. What they encountered was pure carnage. The three-ton truck Ethan was driving, at least 70 miles per hour down the dark road, had swerved off the pavement as it came upon Brianna's stalled car and clipped the back of it. Without hitting the brakes, Ethan's truck then barreled into Brianna, Holly Boyles, Shelby Boyles, and Brian Jennings, killing all four. The out-of-control truck continued, hitting Brian Jennings' vehicle with the two boys inside. Ethan's vehicle then flipped, slamming into a tree. The force of the crash caused Jennings' car to be propelled into the road, hitting another car that was coming in the opposite direction. The car's driver lost control for a moment, swerving onto a lawn before coming to a stop on the side of the road. Eric Boyle saw the body of his wife and daughter strewn about among broken steel and metal. The crash field encompassed over 300 feet in length. Starr last remembered sitting in the back seat with Garrett before the crash. She came to in the front seat. Ethan was unconscious behind the wheel. All of the airbags had deployed on impact. She tried to scream at him to wake up, but he did not move. She was covered in blood, and the glass from the windshield covered her from head to toe. Ambulance sirens began to wail. Several 911 calls had been made, at least one from a boy that had been in Ethan's truck. His words were slurred. He sounded drunk and also in shock. He saw bodies and body parts lying all over the road. When asked by the 911 operator how many people needed help, he said, It's bad. Dude, I have no idea. Ryan Jennings' son and his young friend survived the crash, but the car doors were inoperable and they could not get out. The second boy, Lucas McConnell, climbed out of the shattered back window. What he saw would haunt him for the rest of his days. Ethan Couch was taken to the hospital with a fractured neck, broken rib, and a broken arm. Two hours after the crash, his blood alcohol level was tested and determined to be 0.24, three times the legal limit, if he'd actually been of legal age to drink, which he was not. He was also found to have Valium and marijuana in his system. Because Ethan was just 16 years old, he still possessed a provisional driver's license, meaning it was forbidden for him to operate a motor vehicle with more than one other person in the car not over the age of 21 years old. Killed in the accident were Holly Boyles, age 52, Shelby Boyles, 21, and Brian Jennings, 43, all from Burleson, and Brianna Mitchell, 24, from Lillian. Ethan, Starr, Garrett, and the other two boys inside the truck survived. The two boys in the bed of the truck, Sergio Molina and Solomon Momand, both 15, 
were thrown from the vehicle and seriously injured. Solomon had several broken bones and internal injuries. Sergio suffered a traumatic brain injury and was paralyzed. After the crash, he was in a coma for several weeks. When he finally regained consciousness, he was able to communicate only by blinking. Ethan Couch was tried in the juvenile court system and charged with four counts of intoxication manslaughter and two counts of intoxication assault for the two injured boys that were riding in his truck bed. He admitted to drinking and causing the crash, but as a juvenile, he was not required to plead guilty to the charges against him. In December, six months after the crash, Couch was sentenced by Judge Jean Boyd, not to prison time, but to be sent to a pricey rehab facility in Newport Beach, California, that his parents agreed to pay for. He was given 10 years probation after his lawyer successfully made an argument that his client suffered from a diminished sense of responsibility due to his sheltered and privileged upbringing, so he could not be held legally responsible for his actions. During the sentencing hearing, the defense called their expert witnesses, including psychologist Dr. Dick Miller, who treated both Ethan and his parents after the crash. Dr. Miller laid out a case for what he would later regret calling affluenza. Ethan Couch had been so poorly raised by his parents, without boundaries, without rules, and overindulged by the material wealth his parents had provided for him, that he could not determine right from wrong, the doctor explained. The affluenza defense would come to represent spoiled, pampered, and bratty youth who skated through life without suffering from the consequences of their bad behavior due to their wealth and privilege. To prove his point, he took the court through the highlights of Ethan Couch's life and showed, I submit to you, not only the bad behavior of Ethan, but also of his parents. Calling Ethan's family profoundly dysfunctional, Dr. Miller described for the court Fred and Tanya Couch's volatile and sometimes violent relationship. Even though Fred had described his marriage to Ethan's mother, a, quote, mistake from the start, and she accused him of physically and verbally abusing her, it seems they could not stay away from one another. Ethan, the doctor explained, was often caught in the middle of his parents' drama. In fact, the doctor explained, Ethan's parents seemed to count on him for support and stability instead of the other way around. Calling him an adultified child, Dr. Miller quoted Tanya Couch as calling Ethan her protector from the time he was nine years old. Fred seemed to count on Ethan to take care of himself. Fred Couch was busy running his business and being caught up in the drama with his wife. This created two issues, the doctor explained. Ethan was dealing with a great amount of stress for a young boy due to his chaotic home life, and he was provided very little in the way of rules or guidelines to help him navigate life. Ethan was forced to make his own choices without the guidance of a responsible adult. However, in my experience, children like the one Dr. Miller described, those who are raised in dysfunctional homes and whose emotional needs are not provided for by their parents due to abuse, addiction, or mental illness, tend to take on an adult role. Sometimes called parentified children, these kids often take over the parenting role and become hyper-responsible. They are often straight-A students, work part-time jobs, and care for younger siblings, as well as the dysfunctional parent or parents. Parentified children do not often take the path that Ethan did, which we will see was to drop out of school, break even the minimal amount of rules provided for him, and become a heavy alcohol and drug user. 
In 2006, when Tanya and Fred Couch filed for divorce, the court ordered a psychological evaluation of the family. Tanya, it was reported, was addicted to prescription pain medication, including Vicodin. She was extremely dependent on her young son, Ethan, and could not sleep without him nearby in a separate bed in her own room. Fred had an anger problem and would lash out physically at his wife. He was a big man who often tried to solve problems through force and violence. He was once arrested for punching another man on a job site, but the charges were dropped. After their divorce, they were supposed to share custody of Ethan, but Fred admits that they didn't follow the custody schedule. Fred was opposed to setting and enforcing rules with his son, saying he, quote, wasn't a mother. Instead, he would drop by Tanya's home several times a week to see Ethan. These visits often descended into shouting matches between Fred and Tanya in front of young Ethan. Ethan was a good student in grade school, although he missed weeks of attendance for various unknown reasons. He was absent more than 40 days in the second grade. While Ethan's parents provided little in the way of peace, stability, or security, they did provide everything for their son that money could buy. By the age of nine, Ethan owned both a motorcycle and an ATV, or four-wheel vehicle. He lived in a home on six acres with a pool, a playground, a barn, and a workshop. He had every latest video game, as well as several game consoles, computers, and televisions. Ethan was a student at the Anderson Academy, a prestigious private school for academically gifted children. The school's director remembered that Ethan's parents wanted him to attend the school because they considered him special and better than other children. Of course, they wanted him to excel, and they believed he could do anything he set his mind to. It was clear the director remembers that Tanya loved her son deeply and wanted the best for him. However, faculty at the Anderson School also recall Ethan's parents getting into loud arguments and fights in the parking lot with the boy as witness. Police were called more than once, but again, no arrests were made. Over the years, both Tanya and Fred Couch had their own run-ins with the law. Fred was stopped for a DWI in 1992 and mouthed off to the arresting officer, saying, I make more money in a day than you make in a year. Tanya had a reckless driving charge on her record for renting another car off the road. Neither of these charges, nor any of the others in the future, resulted in Fred or Tanya serving time. Ethan, although gifted academically, began to take the easy path in school and eventually in life. He began by befriending other boys who were not serious students and had their own problems with authority. His best friend Garrett, who was with him on the night of the crash, was also a student at Anderson before being asked to leave for threatening another child. The Couch's break with the Anderson Academy came in 2010, when Ethan, at age 13, was seen driving himself to school. The school director questioned his father, who said it was okay because he'd given his son permission to do so. When the director insisted that the boy would not be allowed to continue to drive himself to school, since it was illegal and dangerous, Fred blew up. He was insistent that his son be allowed to drive himself and when they threatened to get the authorities involved, Fred decided to pull Ethan out of school. Ethan, he told them, didn't need the school anyway, and he didn't need college. He was going to take over the family's profitable sheet metal business, so it didn't matter if he stayed in school, he scoffed. Ethan was enrolled in a homeschool co-op for a couple of years, but neither of his parents was very insistent that he complete his schoolwork. By the age of 15, Ethan, once a promising math and science student, had dropped out of school altogether. 
Ethan began drinking and smoking marijuana at a young age, and his use increased as he reached his middle teen years. Neither Tanya nor Fred monitored their son or what he was doing. Ethan began rebelling against the few roles his parents did provide for him. He left whenever he wanted to, stayed out late, or sometimes didn't come home at all, and couldn't be bothered to comply with his parents' wishes. His life mostly consisted of playing video games, driving around in his pricey truck provided by his parents, and partying with friends. In 2011, when Tanya and Fred reconciled, Ethan had long gotten used to making his own rules. When he and his mother moved into his father's home in Fort Worth, Ethan and Fred butted heads. Fred really didn't want to be bothered, and instead of insisting that his son follow the house rules, Ethan says his father kicked him out of the house, telling him to go live in the empty house in Burleson. Tanya and Fred's version of events were that they had simply allowed Ethan to live there temporarily because he was supposed to help them get the house ready to be put on the market. By early 2013, Ethan was a teen out of control. His drinking and drug use had become almost a daily habit. He was living without any adult supervision. He was a high school dropout, although he claimed to be taking community college courses. And he had a very part-time job at the company his father owned. He also had a paid-for car and a generous allowance provided by his parents. He was still able to play his parents off of one another. When one told him no, he'd simply go to the other to get what he wanted. In one example, his father had forbidden him to drive his classic Firebird that he kept stored in the garage, but found out that it had been driven. He punished his son by grounding him from the use of his truck. But Ethan complained to his mother about his lack of wheels, and she then agreed to let him use her truck. Everyone must drive trucks in Texas. Y'all can let me know if it's true. In one last glaringly irresponsible parenting moment in the Couch family, in February 2013, four months before the fatal crash, Ethan was caught drunk in public by police officers. Ethan was found urinating in a public parking lot at 1 a.m. Nearby sat his mother's F-150 truck, and inside was a passed-out, nude, 14-year-old girl. Police also found an open bottle of vodka and beer in the vehicle. Ethan was clearly drunk, but instead of being arrested and booked into juvenile hall, police called Tanya to the scene. Ethan proceeded to argue with her, saying that he hadn't snuck out of the house and that he'd only, quote, drank one beer. He was given a ticket for a minor in consumption and a minor in possession, and his mother was allowed to take him home. Later, when asked what had happened to the passed-out girl, Tanya replied, I'm not really sure. I guess her parents must have picked her up. Ethan's mother then covered for her son by lying to her husband about the incident. She also paid his court fees. Ethan was ordered to complete an alcohol awareness class and community service hours. When he didn't, Tanya once again intervened, telling the court that it was, quote, her fault because she had misread the online instructions. Ethan never took responsibility for his actions and often minimized his behavior or blamed it on others. He would say that he hadn't had that much to drink, although any amount was illegal since he was under the legal drinking age of 21, or that he wasn't told about a rule, so it wasn't his fault he broke it. Even the night of the crash, although injured, he was able to walk away from the wrecked truck and was heard to say that he'd only had two beers, so he wasn't going to be in trouble for the crash. It seems that with a history of being given very little rules and being let off the hook whenever he was held responsible, 
Ethan learned that rules didn't apply to him. This is what Dr. Miller described as affluenza, and what Ethan's defense attorneys, Scott Brown and Reagan Wynn, argued when they recommended that their client only receive drug and alcohol treatment and probation and no jail time. The prosecutors wanted a much more severe penalty for Couch. Four people had lost their lives, and he'd caused severe injuries to several others, including Sergio Molina, who would be completely paralyzed for the rest of his life. The families of the victims would live with the trauma and heartache for the rest of their lives. The prosecutor asked that the defendant be sentenced to 20 years in prison. Instead, Judge Boyd agreed that Ethan would be sent to the rehab facility on his parents' dime. He was given 10 years probation, but no jail time. As you can imagine, the outcry from the victims' families and the public was swift. The media also picked up on the so-called affluenza defense, and the psychologist who coined the term was ridiculed. Alexandra Petrie of the Washington Post sarcastically offered the following advice. I can't possibly be guilty of a crime officer, you point out if anything comes up. I have far too much money. Others pointed out the irony of the sentence, considering the defense itself. Columnist Mike Hashimoto of the Dallas Morning News wrote that the judge, quote, pretty much did what Ethan Couch's parents had always done, which is let him skate, unquote. Eric Boyles, who lost his wife and daughter in the crash, was especially incredulous and spoke with reporters after the verdict. I had asked the court, well, well, Ethan has had a privileged life, and money has always been there, and money always seems to keep Ethan out of trouble. This was one time I did ask the court that for justice and that for money not to prevail. And ultimately today, I felt like money did prevail today. That if Ethan had been any other 16-year-old um, without um, parents of influence and money that I believe the outcome and the circumstances would have been different. But um, for probation, for four lives, and the two serious um, injuries, I, 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 I don't get it. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't get it. Ethan Couch was sent to a rehab facility in Newport Beach, California, that provided equine therapy, you get to ride horses, massages, offered cooking classes and mixed martial arts training, and was equipped with a swimming pool. The cost for treatment there ran over $450,000 per year. After 62 days, however, Fred Couch signed Ethan out of rehab. He had already been billed over $90,000 for Ethan's time there and said that he simply couldn't afford it. Ethan was then sent to a locked inpatient mental health facility in Vernon, Texas, for an unspecified period as ordered by the judge. The daily rate for that facility was over $700 per day, but his parents were ordered to pay $1,100 per month, the maximum amount allowed on the state's sliding scale fee structure. Between September and November 2013, several lawsuits were filed by the victims and their families. The suits named Fred Couch, Ethan Couch, Tanya Couch, and Cleburne Metalworks, Fred Couch's business, because the F-350 truck that Ethan was driving the night of the crash was owned by the company. The lawsuits were filed by Brian Jennings' wife Shauna, Eric and Marguerite Boyles, victims Holly and Shelby Boyles' family, and Brianna Mitchell's mother Marla. The families of three of the teens injured in the crash, Lucas McConnell, 
Isaiah McLaughlin, and Sergio Molina, also filed suit. Molina's family sued for $20 million for their severely injured and paralyzed son. His care had already cost over $1 million, and he would need around-the-clock care for the rest of his life, which would run into the multiple millions of dollars. The lawsuits were settled in a group settlement in 2014. All of the suits were settled out of court by the end of 2015. Ethan Couch was released from the rehab facility and quietly faded back into his private life. However, in the age of social media, nothing stays private for long. In December 2015, two and a half years after the fatal crash and two years into Ethan's 10-year probation sentence, a video was posted on Twitter of several teens playing beer pong at a party. One of them appeared to be 18-year-old Ethan Couch. Because the terms of his probation prohibited him from any drug or alcohol use, not to mention that he was still underage, this violation could lead to a resentencing, which could mean up to a 10-year prison sentence for Couch. Couch was then ordered to report to his probation officer. When he did not show up for the appointment, an arrest warrant was issued on December 11, 2015. A week later, both Ethan and his mother were reported as missing. They were suspected to have left the country and the U.S. Marshal Service and the FBI were called in to hunt for the fugitives. A $5,000 reward was offered for information leading to the whereabouts or arrest of Ethan Couch. On December 28th, Ethan and his mother were found hiding in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. They had changed their appearance, Tanya cutting her hair short and Ethan dyeing his once blonde hair and red beard dark brown. They left their identification behind before driving the 1,200 miles over the border. They were holed up in an inexpensive section of town in a small two-bedroom apartment. Ethan almost never left the apartment, while Tanya would leave infrequently to purchase food or other necessities. Nearby residents said they believed the pair had arrived in town in early December, soon after the Twitter video was posted. Authorities suspected that Tanya Couch had taken her son out of the country when he was faced with having his probation revoked. Once again, she was trying to shield her son from the consequences of his own actions. And once again, she tried to indulge him, which is what tipped off the authorities that they might have fled. You see, Ethan's mother had thrown him a party right before they left the country. Her son wanted a going-away party to enjoy with his friends before going into hiding. It was the clue that law enforcement needed to begin tracking the fugitives, which ultimately led to their capture. Tanya Couch was deported to the United States on December 30, 2015. She was arrested once her flight landed in Los Angeles on New Year's Eve and charged with hindering the apprehension of a felon. She was held on $1 million bail, but once she was transferred back to Texas, it was reduced to $75,000. She posted bond and was released on January 12. Ethan Couch initially fought extradition to the U.S. and was held in lockup in Guadalajara, Mexico. He soon dropped his fight to avoid being deported and was returned to the U.S. on January 28, 2016. His case was transferred from juvenile to adult court on February 19. On April 13, 2016, he was sentenced to serve four consecutive terms of 180 days in jail, one term for each of the crash victims, or approximately two years in jail. He is scheduled to be released from prison one week from the date of this episode's release, 
April 2, 2018. While it may seem that the affluenza defense is a new phenomenon used in court to excuse criminal behavior, in fact, it has been used much earlier than present times. One trial where wealthy teens were defended using some of the same arguments was the 1924 trial of Leopold and Loeb. The murder they committed was one of the first to be called the crime of the century. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were classmates who both attended the University of Chicago. They were both sons from very wealthy families. Leopold's family was worth an estimated $4 million at that time, which calculates to about $57 million in today's dollars. Loeb's family was even wealthier. His father was vice president of Sears Roebuck & Company and was worth an estimated $10 million in 1924. Both had grown up in an affluent neighborhood in the south side of Chicago, but didn't become friends until they attended university together. In addition, both Leopold and Loeb were academically gifted. Leopold was said to be a child prodigy, who spoke his first words at four months. He had completed an undergraduate degree with honors and was planning to continue his studies at Harvard Law School. He spoke five languages and was a recognized ornithologist, or expert on the study of birds. Loeb had skipped several grades in school due to his superior intelligence and became the University of Michigan's youngest graduate at age 17 before continuing his studies at the University of Chicago. Loeb was obsessed with crime and detective novels and wasn't motivated towards work or career. He was described as lazy and unmotivated by those who knew him. Leopold saw himself as superior to others, and he and Loeb had long conversations about the philosopher Nietzsche's concept of the Superman or Ubermensch. Simply stated, this described individuals who possess unusual and extraordinary capabilities. Nietzsche pointed that their superior intellect allowed supermen to rise above the rules and laws that bound average citizens. In Leopold's interpretation, this meant that he and his friend Loeb were exempted from laws, rules, and morals which guided ordinary people. To test this theory, they began committing petty crimes like theft and vandalism and then graduated to arson. When this did not thrill them enough, they began to plot together to pull off the perfect crime. They wanted to see if they could plan, commit, and get away with an act of murder. So on May 22, 1924, after seven months of planning, 19-year-old Leopold and 18-year-old Loeb persuaded 14-year-old Bobby Franks to get into their car by offering him a ride. Franks was well known to Loeb, as he was a neighbor and also Loeb's second cousin. As soon as Franks entered the car that Leopold and Loeb had specifically rented for the occasion, Loeb, who was sitting in the back seat while Leopold drove, bludgeoned the boy with a metal chisel. They then stuffed a rag into his mouth, gagging him, and he quickly died. Hiding the body on the floorboard of the car, they drove out to a predetermined spot about 25 miles or 40 kilometers away in Indiana. They removed all his clothing and hid the boy's body in a culvert near the railroad tracks. They then poured hydrochloric acid on his face to thwart identification of the body. Franks was also the son of a wealthy family, and when he was discovered missing, word quickly spread. Leopold and Loeb sent a ransom note, planning to collect $10,000 from their victim's family. They provided a series of complex instructions to follow in order to deliver the ransom, but they were confusing and the family member tasked with paying the ransom never made it to the first destination to pick up the next set of instructions. But it was a moot point anyway, because Bobby Frank's body was discovered the following day 
and quickly identified. Leopold and Loeb aborted the rest of the plan and tried to play it cool. They thought they had pulled off the perfect murder and that nothing could be tied back to them, but they made one huge mistake. Leopold had left behind a pair of eyeglasses at the site where they had dumped the body. Investigators, doing old-fashioned detective work, found that the eyeglasses, although fairly ordinary, had an unusual hinge mechanism in their design. It was so unusual that only three pairs of glasses purchased by customers in Chicago were made with that specific design. One had been purchased by Nathan Leopold. He was brought in for questioning and came up with a plausible explanation. He was a bird watcher, he said, and had been to that area on a bird watching expedition. The glasses must have fallen from his pocket, he offered. But detectives still had their suspicions. Lowe was also brought in for questioning when Leopold mentioned him and his alibi. They had been out the night that Bobby Franks went missing on a date with two girls, they both said. They picked up the girls in Chicago using Leopold's car and dropped them off later in the evening. They told detectives that they only knew the girls' first names. But there was a problem. The family chauffeur told investigators that he had been working on Leopold's car the night in question and that it had not been moved from the garage. Just a week after they tried to pull off the perfect crime, Leopold and Loeb were caught and confessed to the murder. However, they each blamed the other for the actual killing. The public was stunned by the news that two wealthy, educated young men from good families could commit such a brutal and heinous crime for no apparent reason. The murder of young Bobby Franks and the court proceedings that followed became a media sensation. Leopold and Loeb showed no remorse and never apologized for their crime. There was much speculation about why two privileged young men with such bright and promising futures would commit such an act. Never before had the public heard of a killing done just for the sheer thrill of it, which is what Leopold and Loeb confessed to authorities. Loeb's family hired famed attorney Clarence Darrow. He had his work cut out for him, since the murderers had confessed to the crime and had gone so far as to take the investigators around town, collecting all the evidence that would be used against them at their trial. For the defendants, it seemed to be a game. The state's attorney announced that he would seek the death penalty. Darrow was a strong anti-death penalty advocate. He took the case, and his first act as their attorney was to have the defendants plead guilty. He did not want them to go before a jury, who would most likely find them guilty and vote for death if the public sentiment was any indication. Instead, they would plead guilty and have the judge decide their punishment. Darrow then set about to save his client from the hangman's noose. He first reminded the judge that the two defendants were still boys in the eyes of the law. The age of majority at that time was 21. He also pointed out that never had there been a case in Chicago where on a plea of guilty, a boy under 21 had been sentenced to death. He hoped this might sway the judge away from the public's clamoring for the death penalty. He then set about to prove that these boys were mentally defective. Calling a succession of expert witnesses to testify, he laid out his case that both of the defendants were, quote, sufficiently devoid of emotion. This would also explain why they showed no remorse for their crime, he explained. Like in the affluenza defense, Darrow argued that Leopold and Loeb's deficits were caused by their wealthy and privileged upbringing. These boys had been raised with every material thing money could buy, but they had lived sheltered lives. They had not been exposed to consequences, as all of their decisions were made for them, and they had not learned right from wrong. As well, they did not receive the nurturing they should have from their families 
and were raised by governesses instead of their own parents, he explained. Loeb, it was said, was raised by a controlling and domineering governess, while Leopold's governess had been sexually abusing him beginning at age 12. Their emotional growth was so stunted, the experts testified, that their reasoning was that of a very young child, around the age of four or five. Darrow stressed the idea that all of these psychological and emotional factors contributed to the boys' delusions, and because of this, they could not be held responsible for their actions. Darrow's closing arguments in the Leopold and Loeb trial went on record as one of the most lengthy in legal history, lasting a full 12 hours in total. He was a gifted orator and wanted to persuade the judge to spare these two young men's lives. On September 10, 1924, the judge handed down his sentence. Leopold and Loeb would not be sent to the gallows, but were sentenced instead to life in prison for the murder of Bobby Franks, plus 99 years for the kidnapping. However, the judge did not make his determination based on any of the expert testimony, psychological evaluations, or scientific theories put forth at the trial. He simply went by the letter of the law and determined that Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were too young to be legally sentenced to death. Some critics of the verdict thought the same thing that the families of Ethan Couch's victims believed, that they had bought their way out of their true and fair sentences. Wealth and privilege, once again, kept them from receiving the same consequences as others who did not have all their advantages. Leopold and Loeb were sent to Joliet Prison to serve their sentence. At first, they were kept apart, but later they were allowed to see one another and continued their friendship. They were later sent to Statesville Prison, where together they worked to improve the prison school system by adding both high school and junior college curriculum. At first, both Leopold and Loeb's families sent them as much money as they asked to purchase goods from the prison store. Later, they were only given $5 per week. It's believed that when they had more access to funds, they used it to pay off some of the more violent inmates to make sure that they were not targeted in prison. When their funds were cut, the pair received increased threats. Leopold was threatened with a knife by an inmate, but others intervened just in time. Loeb was not as lucky. He had a particularly dangerous cellmate named James Day, who he'd been paying off for some time. When the money stopped coming, Day began threatening and attacking Loeb. He was moved from their shared cell. On January 28, 1936, Day attacked Loeb with a straight razor in the shower room. Loeb was rushed to the prison hospital, but bled to death before he could be saved. He was 30 years old. Nathan Leopold tried repeatedly to petition for parole and was finally successful after 33 years behind bars. He was paroled in 1958 and moved to Puerto Rico to escape media attention and live anonymously. There he married and worked as a lab and x-ray technician in a hospital. He later earned a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico and became a researcher for Puerto Rico's Department of Health. He continued his hobby of studying birds and published a book entitled Checklist of Birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. He died of a heart attack in 1971 at the age of 66. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. It will also wrap up the series, but I'll be back next week with a new series, and I hope you'll join me then. Before we end, I will share with you short messages from a couple of great podcasts that you should check out and add to your list of favorites. 
Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fried True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime. Unlike any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format, kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. Until then, y'all take care. Do you and your significant other ever get into discussions that no one else could possibly think are interesting or funny? Do your friends and family wonder, what could these two have in common? If the answer is yes, you should check out our podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Yolanda, and together we're not perfect or functional. The podcast where our discussions about pop culture, true crime, sports, and every random topic that pops in our head highlight where we found common ground. Or not. While embracing our dysfunction. We promise to include you in our smart-ass-tastic world and make you feel right at home. You can find us wherever you subscribe to podcasts, notperfectorfunctional.com, and on Facebook and Twitter. Take a second and check us out. Until then, stay stay dysfunctional. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.